Now, many of you will know that I didn't grow up in a Christian home. We didn't have a Bible in our house. I wasn't weaned on Jesus Loves Me or in any rhymes from some Keith Green CDs. Maybe that was your experience. That wasn't my experience. It actually wasn't until I was a teenager, until I was a teenager, that I met someone who actually claimed to be a Christian, like a legitimate, Bible-believing, born-again Christian. It wasn't until I was a teenager. And for some of you, that may be shocking, but when you grow up in northern New England and then in coastal northern California, it was actually quite normal not to be around Christians. It was completely normal, so much so that I remember the shock that I felt when I encountered such a person. It was like I just uncovered some archaeological relic. Like, wow, you actually believe these things. And then, in a miraculous turn of events, I became a Christian. And I think the only thing perhaps more shocking to me that I had become a Christian, which when I first read the Bible, I did not want to become a Christian, but the the only more shocking that I became a Christian was the fact that actually so many other people claimed to be Christians as well. I couldn't believe it. I was genuinely surprised. I was like, wait, wait, you're a Christian? All these people who claim to be Christians are Christians? 2.2 billion, according to the Pew Research Center. That's an astounding number. If you believe the statistics, roughly one-third of the Earth's population is Christian. People like Gary Busey, Denzel Washington, Bono, Jesse McCartney, Selena Gomez. All right, all claim at some level to be Christian. But are all who claim to be Christians really Christians? That was a question I faced as a young Christian. I wondered and I recognized that starts to bring us sort of wading into some waters of political incorrectness. Right? violating the sacred boundaries of intellectual safe spaces, right? to pose such questions as that. But let's assume for a moment, let's assume that Christianity is actually based on a real person, a real person in history, and let's assume for a moment that its foundations are based objectively on what that person said and did, and not merely our subjective experience of it. What are we to make of such numbers, of such claims? Well, friends, I think our text this morning in the Gospel of Mark will help us. So if you've got a Bible, let me encourage you to open up to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 7 through 19. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the seat back before you, you can find it. It's usually like 838. Sometimes we have a page number. Maybe someone can yell it out for me. I think it's 838. 838 it is. Okay, 838 it is. My mind hasn't totally failed me. Okay. I don't memorize every page in the Bible, just to be clear. I looked at it at some point this morning. Okay. All right. Uh, And if you're just joining us, Jesus, in his public ministry, it's begun, and it's begun with a bang. But one of the things we've come to find already as you've been with us is it's not everyone's on board, really, with Jesus' ministry. In chapters 2 through chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus is encountering increasing conflict with the religious leaders. So angered are they by his unorthodox ministry, they're actually willing to gather together with their enemies, the Herodians, and at the end of 3, 6, we noted they're now plotting to kill him. 
But Jesus, right, he's gone viral. His name, it's trending everywhere. Whatever the religious authorities attempt to do, they can't seem to stop the multitudes from flocking to him. And yet as the masses mount, we see that people come to Jesus for different reasons. Right? They leave him with varying responses. And I think these reasons and these responses help reveal to us who are the real deal right, and who are just the pretenders. So with that, let's begin reading chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Udumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanargus, which is sons of thunder, that is. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. Little note, when you run into names in the Bible, you don't write how to pronounce them. Just say it confidently. We don't really know how to pronounce many of the names. All right. Well, listen, in these two sections, we've got various responses to Jesus. And I think, again, these responses are going to help reveal to us who are the false disciples. And who are the true disciples? So how do we spot the difference? How do we determine those who are genuinely following Jesus, what a disciple is, and those who are only pretending in name only perhaps to follow Jesus? I think the first point I want you to see are the marks of a false disciple. So point one, the marks of a false disciple. Now we pick up the story there in verse 7, and we learn that there's a great crowd following Jesus. Now, he's going to refer to these crowds, a great crowd, in the next verse, and then crowd again in the following verse, verse 9. So, make no mistake, despite the intention of the Pharisees to kill him, right, the staggering multitudes are still flocking to Jesus. Now, these place names in verses 7 and 8, it's a bit like Mark's trying to say, hey, from coast to coast, Right from Galilee, which is to the north, to Idumea, which is all the way in the south, about 120 miles south, people are traveling more than sort of six straight days one way in order to see Jesus, to have an opportunity perhaps just to touch him. He's so popular, right? Jesus doesn't need to go on tour, right? The tour is coming to him. He doesn't need to have shows and dates. They're all flocking to see him. But it even crosses borders, right? Tyre and Sidon, those are actually Gentile lands to the north. And remember, Gentiles and Jews, they don't mix. I mean, it might be like Trump deciding to take a family pilgrimage to Tijuana, you know, across the border. 
And that struck us, well, maybe given some of the things he said, he probably wouldn't do that. Well, Gentiles should be crossing over into Jewish lands, but there's something about Jesus that is drawing and attracting these crowds. And yet they're pressing in so forcefully that he needs to have, he says, verse 9, a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Like you have images of the pop stars with their handlers. Right? And Jesus is saying, you know, have the car ready. Keep the engine running in case things get a little hairy. Like I, I might need to get out of Dodge. It's a wild scene. I mean, just try to picture the mayhem of the sick masses traveling for days, trying to shove their way to the front. The malevolent cries of the demon possessed. I mean, it's, it's pandemonium around Jesus. None of the sort of folksy kind of saccharine images of Jesus surrounded by fluffy, fat little lambs and beaming toddlers. That's not at all the picture that we get right here. It is a a sick, sweaty, scrappy mob just scrambling and, and clamoring in any way to get access to Jesus. And why are they frantically pursuing him? Verse 8, the great crowd, well, they heard all that he was doing. Verse 10, for he healed many. And I think we begin to see here just two marks that often define false disciples. False disciples. They're not exhaustive, right? The Bible will list others, but I think this is two that our text helps to highlight for us. And the first is this false disciples gather around wonders, not the word. False disciples, first mark we see, they gather around wonders not the word. Right? The crowds didn't come to hear Jesus. It's not about the message he's heralding. It's about how he heals them. His words aren't the attraction. The wonders he's performing, that's the great attraction to the people. That's what's gathering the crowds. And friends, it's not that much different in our own day. Right? Wonders will, will always gather a crowd. I'm still amazed. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit of a skeptic by nature, but I'm still amazed that, that faith healers still perform to these sellout crowds. Charlatans who, who slay people on stages in order to swindle money from others. Right? They're praying and they, they profit upon people's most pressing physical needs. Friends, we can't forget. Wonders may gather a crowd, but the word gathers a congregation. And there's a big distinction there. Wonders may gather a crowd, yes, but the word gathers a congregation. And yet before we sort of cast stones at others' homes, I think we have to remind ourselves that this can be a, a bit of a risk, perhaps, even among ourselves. It can be a challenge in this room as well. I mean, it was, it was Neil Postman all the way back in 1985, before some of you were born, which is hard for me to believe. But before some of you were born, when he wrote in Amusing Ourselves to Death, right, before the iPhone, before the internet, before Instagram, he presciently wrote this. We no longer talk to each other, but entertain each other. We do not exchange ideas. We exchange images. We do not argue with propositions. We argue with good looks, celebrities, and commercials. Those are amazing words to have written back in 1985 when you consider our culture. 
But I think for me, I just had to pause for a minute. And that could that even describe perhaps what we value in, in a church service? I mean, what do you value in a service? Why do you pick the church that you do? You know, maybe we say we want excellent music. But is there any part of us that really means by that we want entertaining music? You ask yourself, do you, do you care more about what we sing or how it makes you feel? Or maybe it's preaching. But are we really more wowed at the end of the day by, by the poise, by the humor, by the slick gifts of the preacher than the content of what he's preaching? We're not spectators judging a show. So often that's, that's what we think. We come in, maybe subconsciously, and, and we're spectators judging a show, but we're not spectators. right? We're participants. We're called into this divine drama. You participate. You sing the songs, you pray the prayers, say amen. Right? You listen to the word, you engage with the word. To quote Postman again, Christianity is a demanding and a serious religion. And when it is delivered as easy and amusing, it's another kind of religion altogether. You know, just think, what are your expectations of church? What are your expectations of church? You know, so often I think it's about making us feel happy. Perhaps making us feel better about ourselves. Maybe that's why you've come to church this morning. But in times past, recognize people did not go to church to be made happy. They went to church to have their misery explained to them. An enormous difference. People didn't go to church to be made happy. They went to church to have their misery explained to them. If you know The Triumph of the Therapeutic, an old book written by the 60s by a Jewish man named Retief, that's what he notes. You know, I'm not making that up. That's just a historical reflection. Do we even have a category for something like that? Friends, you know, sometimes you're going to walk out of here and you actually may not feel better about yourselves. You know, your self-esteem may not have been given a colossal boost as you walk out these doors. But that's not always a bad thing. You know, God doesn't coddle us in our sin. Sometimes he'll shake us and beat it out of us. And of course, that's not going to be a pleasant experience, but perhaps that's exactly what we need. That's what we need the word to do in our lives. And I say all this because like these crowds, it can be easy in other subconscious ways to begin to value performance and presentation more than the power of the word when we gather. You know, we come here to have our needs met like the crowds. We miss the deeper purpose for why we gather. I mean, because the crowds, if you think about it, they were very aware of their physical healing and their need for physical healing. But do they seem at all interested in spiritual healing? You know, I think we're pretty funny creatures, fallen humanity. We have a deep awareness of our physical faults. We know when we are sick. We know when our body is crumbling about us. We know that we can't heal thyself. And yet spiritually, well, often that is so lost upon us. You know, we, we know our bodies are deficient, but don't you dare tell me I'm spiritually deficient. Don't you dare tell me spiritually I can't help myself, that I'm not good enough to heal thyself. Well, now, we don't want that message. We don't really have patience for that message, but that's the message the Bible brings. Friends, if you're from, unfamiliar with the Scriptures, 
part of what the scriptures reveal from the beginning to end is why this world is as messed up as it is. And it is because we are fallen, we are sinful. Not just that we're broken and that something bad has happened to us, but we actually do bad things. We willfully do bad things, wicked things even. We think wicked things. We'll even act out, premeditate such things. And it's because of that that God judges us for our sin. He's a good God. It's what he will do. But the great hope of the scriptures, if it ends there, it's always bad news. The great hope of the scriptures is that God sent his son, glorious Jesus Christ, the son of God we sung about. And he lived that perfect life in obedience to the father. He didn't choose sin. He never chose wickedness. He was never concerned about himself or merely his needs. But he gave himself, his life in fact, for all of those who would repent of their sin and trust in him. And all that who would do that, as he was resurrected to newness of life, we know we can have forgiveness of our own sins. We can be at peace with God. Friend, if that message is new to you, that's just as Christians what we call the gospel. It's why this church gathers. I'd love to chat with you. Any of the pastors or folks at the doors afterwards would love to chat with you about that if you've not heard that message, if you don't know that news. Listen, the first mark of a false disciple is that they gather around wonders and not the word. That's part of the lesson of the crowds. But I think a second mark of a false disciple is this. They offer confession without genuine submission. Second mark, they offer confession without genuine submission. I think this is the lesson of the the unclean spirit back in verse 11. That unclean can throw us, remember back from chapter 1, verse 23, unclean and evil are just synonymous within Mark as it refers to spirits. This is an evil spirit. And we read that this unclean spirit, or the spirits, plural, fell down before him. Now, just to be clear, it's not like they tripped and fell and had an embarrassing moment. Right? No, this is the gesture of a supplicant, of an inferior spontaneously bowing before their superior. And notice their cry right there, you are the son of God. Which is a remarkable cry because if you've been paying attention so far in Mark, there are only two categories of people who've made this confession. The father says that about his son at Jesus' baptism back in one eleven. And then back that evil spirit in, in 124 and the evil spirits here, they're confessing Jesus as the Son of God. But apart from that, that's it. The Pharisees aren't doing that for certain. The disciples aren't even doing that yet. So it's deeply ironic that even here the, the demons recognize, even here they can recognize what the Pharisees are unwilling to recognize. Right? They have better theology than the theological teachers within Israel. But yet this confession they make, it's not the same thing as genuine submission. It's not belief. So if you've been attending the Apologetics Adult Bible Fellowship that's been going on for the last few weeks, you'll notice and remember perhaps that they've discussed the difference between sort of belief biblically and mere knowledge or assent. Right, Because in the scriptures, that biblical belief it entails knowledge of facts and events, assent, yes, believing that facts, but also trust as well, giving your life to those things. And the demons, they have this knowledge, they even have assent, like they believe he's the son of God, and yet they don't trust, they're not willing to give their lives over to it. This is a cry of despair. It's not a cry of faith the demons are making. 
Right? It's more livid than it is loyal. They see him as their destroyer, not as their savior. But this is the sort of spontaneous homage that they will pay to the one who is indeed the only deity. And my friends, don't be deceived. Remember this picture of them bowing. Because there's going to come a day, according to Paul in Philippians 2, 10, and 11, there's going to come a day where every knee will bow in submission and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And on that day, every knee will bow, not one is spared, and you will either confess Him as your Savior or you'll confess Him as your judge. You will either belt it with a great and solemn joy or you mumble it bitterly through clenched teeth. But either way, we all make this confession. Because Jesus is not just some rabbi with great teaching gifts. He's not simply some healer. He's the son. There's none like him. There never has been. There never will be. He owns everything. He owns you and he owns me and this whole world. And it's all accountable. We're all accountable to him. And as the son, to reject the son is to do nothing less than reject God himself. Right? The stakes don't get any higher. You know, many call Jesus the son of God. But if you haven't turned yourself all of yourself over to Jesus, it's confession without genuine submission. Which means if you haven't turned not just your Sunday, but your Sunday through your Saturday, right? what you do with your body, what you do with your money, what you do with your time, what you do with everything, if you haven't turned all of that over to Him, you reveal it's mere confession, not genuine submission. You reveal that perhaps you may be a false disciple. Because confession and genuine submission, not the same thing. All right, some things to note, marks of a false disciple. But let's turn, let's think of some of the marks this morning of a true disciple. Marks of a true disciple. That's going to take us into our next verses, verses 13 through 19. And we read in verse 13 that Jesus went up on the mountain. And that little detail, like we read it, we can run right by that detail. But in the Bible, mountains are places of divine revelation. They mark sort of those seminal moments in in God's dealing with men. We saw that even earlier in the service. As Ken read to us from the Ten Commandments. You know, those commandments given there at Mount Sinai. So that bit of info... Right? If we're a careful biblical reader, that alerts us that, hey, something significant could possibly happen at this moment. And indeed it does. We read Jesus called to himself those whom he desired. And here we see the first mark of a true disciple. What is it? Well, they're made by God, not man. The first mark of a true disciple. Made by God, not man. So calling is the language of divine initiative that he called, Jesus called to himself, just to push that point home, those whom, if it hadn't been clear yet, he desired. 
all of that emphasizing that the decision lay within Jesus' sovereign choice. Like the call of Moses back in Exodus 3-4 at the burning bush. Or the call of young Samuel in 1 Samuel 3 when he was just a little boy and dead asleep. He wasn't searching for God in that moment, but God spoke to him. Or Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1-5 who wasn't just a little boy. Jeremiah didn't even exist. And yet he was set apart, we read, before he was ever formed in the womb. Called and appointed. Right? The point is that Jesus summoned those whom he willed. It's not like the disciples decided to follow poor old Jesus because his numbers were a little low. No, they're not doing him a favor. Rather, his call accomplished what it commanded and began to establish a people. Men may produce decisions. God produces disciples. So we, perhaps in the best of intentions, can push and lean and maybe even coerce. And men, yet we can produce decisions. God produces disciples. Even that language of Jesus appointing the twelve there in verse 12. He appointed the twelve. Literally, the Greek reads, he made twelve. He made 12. That 12 patterned after the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? Jesus is already beginning to hint, this is, this is a new Israel. This is a new people of God. Remember the parable before, new wine can't be contained in old wineskins? This is a new people of God. But it's an odd way to put it, though. Right? He made 12, is what it literally says. Which is why our English translations say, appointed When Mark says he made them, that's his theological way of emphasizing disciples are made by God, made by him. We may even have some echoes of Genesis 1 where the same verb is used. He he created them. And then notice what he does with some of them. He names them. To remind you of Adam in the garden, naming some of the animals. The The one who names is the one who's given such authority. It's speaking to Jesus' call and his authority with these people. Friends, realize discipleship has far more to do with what God does in us than what we ever do for him. Discipleship, far more to do with what God does in us than what we ever do for him. So just a note here. You know, when the Bible speaks of calling, like it does here in, in verse 13... It does in terms of like a gospel call to salvation. So Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. But it also does more like this on a call to apostolic ministry, such this verse or perhaps Acts 13.2. That's it, which means practically the language of calling where we sometimes say, you know, God called me to be a doctor. Or God called me to marry this person. Or even God called me to be a youth pastor. That's actually not biblical language. It's not the way the Bible uses that word. And I don't think it's particularly helpful. Because if we're not careful, it can leave us feeling like somewhere along the way we missed God's calling. Like God's calling was a, was a train ticket. And somewhere along the way we made a mistake and we were a little late and we missed that train and now we've... We're outside that call, perhaps outside God's will. Or we can use it maybe even to justify our own desires. Like God's called me to the mission field. Implication. 
you don't have any authority to tell me otherwise. God gave me that call. You, you can't question that call. It works almost like a theological trump card. But in the Bible, right, you're not called to go on the mission field until a church sends you. In the Bible, calling is not about career and vocation. Right? If you want to look at it, it comes from the Latin word. It has a lot to do more with Roman medieval Catholic theology than it has to do with the Scriptures. Calling is not about career or vocation. It's about spiritual service and whatever sphere of life we're in. Right? So William Tyndale, a reformer, would put it really well, that if our desire is to please God, pouring water, washing dishes, cobbling shoes, preaching the Word, it's all one. One is not higher than the other. Again, calling not so much about career or vocation, but spiritual service in whatever sphere of life God has put us in. So if you want to think more about calling as it relates to your season of life, maybe even how to make decisions, right? If I've said some things, you're like, well, this pastor, I knew he was weird, but now he's like getting way off the, off the rails. There's a guidance class, one of those ABFs downstairs. You can think more, what does it look like to find God's will, to be, quote unquote, in God's will? There's an adult Bible fellowship class, meets downstairs, right below this room, 9 o'clock. You're welcome to go. It might help you think through some of these things. Okay, true disciples are made by God. And recognizing this, if we grasp that, that should free us to, to share the gospel joyfully, to share it honestly, to share it clearly, leaving the results in God's hands. Because if, if it's truly his work, he's not going to blame us if we fail to close the deal. Right? That's his job. We, he can blame us if we fail to open our mouths, but he's got to open the heart to make that heart receptive. And friends, that should free us to share as happily and joyfully, right? Readily. Knowledge, God makes them should produce that in us. But a second mark of a true disciple is that they understand it's a relationship before it's a responsibility. It's a second mark I want you to see of a true disciple. They understand it's a relationship before it's a responsibility. So look up at verse 14. So Jesus has called and they've come to him and he's appointed the 12, right, so that for what purpose did Jesus do this? So that they might be with him. They might be with him. What a beautiful phrase. Jesus wanted the twelve with him. He desired them. He desired the twelve not as tasks to be completed, but as individuals. Individuals to be known. Individuals to be loved. And they did, as we keep reading, they do life together, right? They lived together, they ate together, they, they traveled and they talked and they walked together. Because true discipleship is about knowing a person, not performing a task. It's all about the who before it's ever about the what. Oh, friend, if you're in Christ, you've got to know this morning the same affection that Christ that he lavished on his own disciples, it's the same affection Christ feels toward you if you are in him. Again, not because he's lonely, but because he rejoices in the companionship, in the friendship, in the bond of the disciples. Right? The disciples had Jesus' physical presence, but the crazy thing about the Gospels is they say that's not actually the best thing. The best thing is for him to leave them and to send his spirit. 
Because the Jesus beside them is actually not as great as the spirit that would reside in them. And that's the spirit of Christ that we possess if we're in Christ. So often we want to think, oh, I wish I could just walk with Jesus. Actually, you're in a better spot if you're in Christ right now. You have the spirit within you. Fellowship with him. And that's what defines genuine discipleship. It is this personal relationship with Jesus where God makes Jesus known to us. And we, we know that presence of his work and his, his comfort and his conviction, all of those things through the Spirit. Now, if this is a little foreign, there's a great book. We have it on the bookstall. I checked. It's called Knowing God book written by J.I. Packer many years ago, but it's an excellent book. What does it look like to be in relationship with God, to know God as a Christian? If you haven't looked at that, ever read it, I'd encourage you to pick it up and reflect upon it. But that's not just what discipleship is. It's about our relationship to Jesus fundamentally, like that vertical relationship. And yet, it's about discipling. It's about horizontally how we help other people follow Jesus, how we help them grow in Christ. This is what the disciples will do with one another. This is their ministry in the book of Acts as we trace the work and ministry of the disciples. You know, following Christ, which has as an implication discipling others, not just discipleship with Jesus, it's not merely about communicating information, like here's a book There's lots of good details. I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to quiz you in a week. That's not what discipling is. That's not how we help one another get to heaven. It's doing life together. It's investing in a few. One of the things you'll notice is the disciples are listed in various times in the Scriptures. Um, You'll find Peter, James, and John often listed right at the front. Those were three that, of the twelve, Jesus particularly poured himself into, investing in a few, as Jesus did, but for the purpose of doing intentional spiritual good. And that may sound intimidating, but it's not, in fact, complicated. Simply inviting other people into the regular rhythms of your own life. So think about your week, how you can perhaps incorporate other Christians Maybe a a mature Christian you'd like to learn from, or a younger Christian. Or maybe you're like, you know, I don't know who's mature and who's young. I just know I would benefit from some other Christians and trying to pour into them and have them pour into me. And you reach out to them and try and invite them into those rhythms, whether it's in your home. Or if you've got to take a lunch at work, invite them into those lunch hours or over errands that you might have to run or whatever opportunities you have. But again, it's in order to discuss the word, to intentionally do spiritual good to one another. If you want to think more about that, there's another resource on the bookstall. I'm resource heavy today, all right? Discipling by Mark Dever. And just as a little encouragement, there's a cameo my wife makes in the book. She is far more famous than I am. I'm well aware of that. She's in the book, and you can read all about it, and preferably read about it with someone else, right? And think about the Christian life together. Because discipleship is about a relationship before it's about any responsibility. What do we think even last week, right? A person, not precepts. Same idea. Jesus calls them to himself here, and he calls them to himself to be with him before he ever sends them out to do anything. But we see a third mark of a true disciple is that they imitate Christ with us, not the culture around us. It's a third thing, third mark of a true disciple. They imitate Christ with us, not the culture around us. 
So Jesus appoints 12 that they might be with him. But he also has a second purpose, so that he might send them out. Well, to do what? To, to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So that's what they do. They're, they're sent out to preach and to cast out demons. And what's Jesus been doing in Mark since the start of his ministry? He's been going around preaching and doing some healing and casting out demons. In other words, the disciples are to imitate Jesus. They're to mimic his ministry. The mark of a disciple is to increasingly look like Jesus. Now, some of you at this point may be immediately wondering, okay, does that mean my ministry should be accompanied by not just sharing the word, but, but also these, these miraculous signs, these healings, these exorcisms? Well, it seems to me personally, just my two cents, it seems to me that the signs and wonders that, that accompanied the spread of the gospel in the early church, like we read in Acts, for example, well, they were largely confined to the apostolic era. And I mean by that like capital A, the time of the apostles, the particular eyewitnesses of Christ, those commissions particularly, particularly by Christ. I think it's instructive. You don't have Paul who will perform such signs and wonders. You don't have Paul telling Timothy, his own protege, heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out spirits. That's not actually what Paul tells Timothy to do. When we read, he says, no, discharge the duty of establishing that church in Ephesus. How? By preaching the word and by praying and caring for the people. Many look to Ephesians 2.20 where Paul says the church is what? Built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles. But now that that foundation is laid, that, that office of apostle, capital A, has ceased, I expect with it the expectation of such signs and wonders has also ceased. I'm not saying they can't happen. Just a little note, we really don't want to say what God can't do unless it's lie about himself or something along those lines. But, of course, he can do such miracles if he wished. It just doesn't seem to be the normative experience in the Christian life. All right, so what does it look like then practically, okay? They're to imitate Christ. Well, we imitate Christ. How do we do that? By cherishing his word, right? It's to know the word. They were to preach it. They were to know it, to share it, to obey it. And not just the parts that culture finds acceptable, the parts that are particularly easy, like the call to turn the other cheek or to love one's enemies. But all of the word, they're to cherish teach and obey. As Jesus goes on to say in Mark eight thirty four. if any would follow me, let him do what? Let him deny himself. And we run right over that. But if we think long and hard about what it would mean to deny ourselves, the call of Jesus is high and it is hard sometimes. To deny oneself for whomever, he says, is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. Wow, that's Jesus saying that? Yes, that's Jesus who says that very thing in Mark 8. It's often a lot easier to, to imitate the culture around us, to imitate it as opposed to the Christ within us through the Spirit, the Christ with us through the Word, right, with the Spirit. You know, CNN had a headline I just happened to notice yesterday. Outlaw pastor shakes up the Bible belt. And I'm still not sure if you all consider this a Bible belt. I live here now. Some of you call this the buckle. Some of you say, no, that's to the east of here. I'm not sure. But I know it's more Bible-oriented than where I grew up. So let's just settle. We're sort of somewhere near the buckle, if that's all right. 
And so I read this, and I'm thinking, okay, I better, I better figure out what, who's this outlaw pastor. And it's actually Rob Bell. And uh, he actually isn't a pastor anymore. I think CNN must have missed that. But he's actually the former pastor of Mars Hill Church in Michigan. And now he is a tour, and he's currently in Atlanta. I guess that's where CNN thinks the Bible Belt is. He's in Atlanta, and he's calling people to read the Bible, not literally, but literately. That has a good ring to it, doesn't it? Not literally, but literally. And it's all part of a new book he's just released, What is the Bible? Well, just to be clear, Jesus intends you to both read it literally and illiterately. We don't want to put those in antithesis with one another. And if you were in the apologetics class this morning on why we can trust the Bible, you'd know all how to respond to this article from CNN. It was a great class. But when you read it and you listen to what he says, you realize that what Bell's doing is actually nothing new in this tour. He's simply trying to redefine what the Bible has to say about those issues that sound like nails that just grate across our cultural chalkboard. Namely, Jesus is teaching on gender, sexuality, and hell. And to quote him, he says, we need a more forgiving faith to embrace the, quote, truth in every religion, to not condemn people, but, quote, to affirm people where they are in any relationship. Well, friends, I hope you know Christianity is a forgiving faith. It's a wonderfully forgiving faith. And of course, we affirm as Christians all people. And we can ground that because we recognize all people are made in the image of God and thus worthy of affirmation and respect. But forgiveness also presumes we've done something wrong. In some way, we've erred. And to affirm people made in the image of God is not to leave them where they are. It's to point them to God and whom he made them to be. That's what we're called to do. Even when, and especially when God's goals run right against what we want, our own desires, and what we think is good for ourselves. Now, I don't know Rob Bell's heart. But I do know that true disciples imitate Christ. They stick by and stand under that word, even when that word becomes deeply unpopular. So what about you? Just think about your life. Think about your beliefs. We all feel various pressures. Does your life look more like what we read in the pages of the New Testament or in the programs you watch on primetime TV? You know, where do you take your cues? What are you imitating and how you set schedule? The kinds of things you think about, the kinds of things you pray about. I want to close with a few reflections on the 12. A few reflections on these 12. It's rather remarkable. We know a little bit about some, and there's a lot we don't know about most. The point doesn't actually seem to be the individuals so much more than number, more that they're, they're going to make up this new community. But as you go through, you've got Simon or Peter, you've got James and John, like we said, the inner three, you've got Andrew, Philip, and the rest. And I think one of the things is if you read through that and stop and reflect, and if you knew anything about sort of who's who in Jewish society in Jesus's day, you'd be amazed because there are no remarkable people in that list. There's not one. You know, if you're going to launch a product, any marketer will tell you what? What do you got to get? You got to get a prominent spokesman, right? If you're going to sell a basketball shoe, you got to get a star. And if you're going to sell a Bible, 
It's no different. What do you do when the ESV came out? What do you do? Grab Piper, grab MacArthur, grab Chandler, and promote. That's what the ESV did, right? They got all the big pastors and theologians. They promoted it. I'm not saying there's necessarily anything bad with that, right? It's fine, but that's what you do. But who are these guys? Who are these 12? Are we told? Where are their glowing bios? Where are their resumes with pages of accomplishments? Where's like their street cred for this product of Christianity? I'm loathe against that word. It's not a product, but you know how some people market it sometimes. Well, there's none of that. Instead, what do we get? We get a rather plain list of otherwise plain men. Nobody of prominence, nobody of obvious rank, right? No Rockefellers, no Gates, no Ivy League educations and billion dollar bank accounts, not on this list. The only one that's remarked upon, we got Simon, who's a zealot, which meant he loathed Rome. And you got Matthew, who we already know is a tax collector for Rome. Like these are the last two guys that should ever be in the same list. Again, they would loathe one another, but that's what the gospel does. It takes cultural differences and the chasm of those differences that would have existed between a Simon the Zealot and a Matthew the tax collector, and it crushes them under the mountain of commonality that we have in Christ. Oh, friends, I pray that you're praying that our fellowship would increasingly reflect not our shared interests, but our commonality in Christ. That's the powerful witness to the gospel. That's what these disciples displayed. Now you're telling me this group is going to turn the world on its head? This no-name group change the world forever, history forever? Like, not in your wildest dreams. That's all impossible. Except that you've got Jesus' own authority working through them. Right? It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not what we bring to the table. We've got to be careful. I think this is a good warning to us as we even look at this list against pride. Sometimes if we're not careful, we're maybe prone to think that God chose us because we're not quite like the rest. You know, we were a little more careful in our assessment of the truths of Christianity. Or we were perhaps a little more moral than that person next to us. And so that gave us a little more standing with God. You know, it's as if God perhaps is the manager of the Golden State Warriors, and he knows he's got a championship, well, an almost championship team two years ago, but if he's going to get the real championship team, he's got to get a, a key draft pick, right? He needs his Kevin Durant. He needs that piece of the puzzle to, to finish it and to create that championship team. And if we're not careful, we might assume that we're kind of like that with God, that God needs us to complete his purposes, But friends, I hope you see that is a ridiculous notion. God doesn't need us. Apart from Christ, we are all nobodies. But in him, God makes these men as he makes you and me. He makes us somebodies. He works through us to accomplish his purposes. But it's an encouragement as well. If you have you come and you feel rather worthless, like, you know what? I don't think I bring anything to the table. Pretty well aware. If we all knew ourselves better, we would largely be in that category. But you realize God showed us, he chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak to shame the strong. He chose what was lowly and despised to bring to nothing things that are. So you may feel this morning like, you know what, I've got little or nothing to offer God. You may feel like I'm a misfit, right? Never play on that team. Never be a part of that group. 
but he knows exactly what he needs. And he has the ability to do through you and the heart to do through you what you could never accomplish, what you could never do, what you could never be on your own. And in the end, of course, you know, our accomplishments don't finally matter. It's his gift, his call, his work in us. That's why I love that we know so little about some of these names. They're here for us. And we know God used them. But that's all we know. One day, Lord willing, we'll know more. Friends, the world is full of people who claim to be followers of Christ. Who claim to be. And at the end of the day, you know what, we, we leave that to him. He'll finally be the judge. But at the same time, he hasn't left us to guess this morning about the outcome. Or to kind of recreate or re-envision. What does it mean to be a disciple? No, he's made it clear to us. He's made it clear to us. He wants you and me to know. He wants us to know, are you genuinely following? Are you a true disciple or a false disciple? And can you spot the difference? False disciples, yeah, they gather easily around wonders. They don't have much patience for the word. They offer confession with their mouths, but they lack that true submission of their lives. True disciples, made by God and not man, They grasp that discipleship is fundamentally about that relationship, not responsibility and duty. And they imitate Christ. They imitate him. They look like him in opposition to the culture around them. Friend, where does that leave you? Friend, where does that leave you this morning?